Stand with me if you would and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, if you would, this morning. Mark chapter 1, you'll see the screen on Sunday the 24th, two weeks from today. uh, We will be having a water baptism service. If you have never uh, been baptized, let me encourage you. Uh, It is not really just a recommendation of Scripture. It's something that Jesus commanded us to do if we are following Him. And uh, so... We would love to have the opportunity to be our pleasure and our honor to uh, be a part of that special day for you. There, is, there are forms that need to be filled out. You can pick those up at the Welcome Center, um, but we would love to, to be a part of that with you. Again, if you've never been baptized, uh, I would encourage you to do so. Also, um, if you are a guest, I know Paula's already mentioned it, but we encourage you to stop by over at the uh, kiosk over my right over in the corner in the lobby afterwards. We have a gift for you, and uh, we just would like to express our appreciation to you uh, being our guest today. How many love Jesus? Say amen. Mark chapter 1. We're starting a new series today, Mark, a servant on a mission. And the title of this message is um, A Whole New World. And uh, Pastor Clayton is always very good at trying to theme messages and and work with alder services and alder calls and he will many times look at the notes or look at the title and the text and send me an email and say how would this work for alder college so i opened my email on monday he had one for me and uh, it was a youtube video and i was expecting something deeply spiritual and a wonderful altar call and it was actually uh, from aladdin it was a whole new world he thought that would be appropriate. So we're going to use it today, aren't we? I think we'll try that. And uh, anyway, um, Pastor Clayton likes, as he says, to make my sermons memorable. So he is uh, planning to do that. Verse number one, Mark chapter one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. As it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Verse four, John came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River and they confessed their sins. Verse six, now John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, It came to pass in those days that Jesus then came up from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting, And the spirit descending up on him like a dove. And then a voice from heaven. And of course, we are familiar with this. God saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then in verse 12, immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. Verse 13, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days. He was tempted by Satan and was with the wild beast. And the angels ministered to him. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts this morning. I ask God for your anointing on my life. I don't deserve it. I cannot earn it. But Lord, I desperately need it if I'm going to communicate your word appropriately, correctly, 
with authority and integrity and with clarity. So help me to speak your word clearly and simply, but powerfully with your anointing. I pray, God, that in my weakness, your strength would be made perfect, that you would captivate the attention of everyone in this room for these next few minutes. And may the word of God change us for the sake of eternity, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is one of those days that I am, uh, I am really glad there are two services, and uh, I, am hoping, uh, I am hoping to make you glad that you attended the second service today. I wasn't a complete bust, but I didn't feel like I communicated this. Um, now you're already worried. I, I don't feel like I communicated this as well in the first service. It, it forces us to think a little bit. It's a little bit beyond the norm, but I, I believe God's going to help us and we're going to get our minds wrapped around this truth. We're beginning this new series on the Gospel of Mark. Let me tell you a little bit about the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark is one of the four books that we call a gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament are all called Gospels. It is one of the three books that we call part of the Synoptic Gospels. I don't get confused by that word. Just look at it. The root is sin, where we get synthesis. That means together. And optic, which means seeing. And so synoptic means seeing together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you have read those Gospels, all kind of tell the story from the same general perspective, repeat many of the same teachings of Jesus. But the Gospel of John is kind of set apart. He does not tell the same stories. He gives different miracles, has kind of a different theme, still true with integrity to the message of Jesus, but he comes from a different perspective. So the Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they see together. The author of Mark is a man by the name of John Mark. He was a cousin of Barnabas, who was a co-worker with the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Mark actually went on one of the missionary trips with Barnabas and Paul, and yet um, the text indicates that he got homesick and he came home early. And so when Barnabas and Paul got ready for trip number two, Barnabas said, hey, let's give the young guy a second chance. And Paul was evidently a stickler for one strike and you're out. And Paul said, sorry, I don't think he can come. And so Paul and Silas went together and Mark and Barnabas started their ministry together, actually doubling the efforts of the uh, propagation of the gospel. Uh, Mark and Paul did uh, mend fences later. And uh, Paul said, Mark is profitable to me. But there was that little rift in the book of Acts. So some things never change. Human nature is human nature. But this is who John Mark was. He is likely, uh, Mark, the gospel of Mark, is likely the first of the four gospels to be written. Of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are pretty certain it was written around A.D. 58, which would, or in the mid-50s, excuse me, which would make it about two decades after Jesus died. He died around 32 AD. And so we suspect that Mark wrote his gospel in the early uh, to mid fifties, about 20 years later. He wrote it from Rome during a time of persecution. Christians were hated and persecuted. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But what is really interesting about Mark, the gospel of Mark, is that John Mark was not a, uh, a person that spent a lot of time, if any time at all, with Jesus. He was not one of the 12 disciples, but he was a close friend and associate to Peter. 
And so almost all scholars believe that Mark is actually presenting the gospel, the, the, the story, through the eyes, through the lens, through the perspective of Peter, which makes this even that much more interesting. So with Peter as the source, it helps to know a little bit about Peter. Let me tell you a few things about him. His original name was Simon. Jesus changed his name. You are Simon. Now you are going to be called Peter. He was the son of Jonas from Bethsaida. He was the brother of Andrew. And Andrew and Peter, brothers, were fishing partners with James and John. So the four of them uh, fished together. The four of the 12 disciples that were called by Jesus were fishermen. Uh, Peter was married. We know that because he had a mother-in-law and his mother-in-law in in Mark chapter 1 and verse 30 was healed of a high fever. So this is a man uh, who had a family and was married. He was called by Jesus to be a fisher of men, Peter was, and he left everything that he had in all of his nets And he followed Jesus. Peter was one of the inner three. Peter, James, and John together uh, were part of that inner circle of Jesus. He is the one that promised that he would not deny Jesus. But he did three times before the rooster crowed. Peter was the guy that, that often opened his mouth and inserted his foot. We have any folks in here like that that have done that a time or two? Peter was that guy, all right? He, he did that often. But he knew the power of being restored by Jesus as well. Even after his failure in John 21, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, he restores Peter, and Peter becomes a great man of God. God used Peter on the day of Pentecost to preach, and 3,000 people were saved in that sermon in Acts chapter 2. And he died a horrible death as a martyr sometime between A.D. 65 and A.D. 69. And Peter was crucified because of his faith upside down. And uh, tradition says that Peter said, I don't want to be crucified right side up because I am not worthy to die like Jesus. And so he gave his life for the gospel um, and was martyred. Uh, for the sake of the gospel. So Peter is the source of Mark's gospel. Everything that we learn over the next several weeks will really be through the eyes, through the perspective, through the experience of Peter. Now today we are going to look at, for just a few minutes, uh, the prologue, that's just the opening section of the book of Mark. Actually, the first 13 verses. It's kind of an introduction to the gospel of Mark. One of the things that is different about Mark from um, Matthew and Luke is that Mark does not have any birth story. There's no birth narrative. Matthew and Luke start off when Jesus was born. In Mark, there are no angels, there are no shepherds, there are no magi coming. He begins telling the story of Jesus after Jesus has already grown and ready to embark on his ministry. The story in Mark chapter 1 begins with John the Baptist out preaching in the wilderness. People from Judea and Jerusalem are flocking out to the Jordan River where John the Baptist baptizes them. And as he baptizes them, John the Baptist is making an announcement. He is announcing that he's not really the one they should be looking for, but there is someone coming after him that is greater than him. As a matter of fact, these are the words of John the Baptist. Someone soon 
who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John said, he's coming. That's the one that you need to be looking for. And so in our text, John is out baptizing and Jesus goes out to see John. And Jesus is baptized. And when Jesus goes down into the water and is baptized, the Bible says that a dove comes and lands on him. And the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, comes in the form of a dove. And the heavens open up, the skies open up, and God the Father... Notice, by the way, the Trinity is there. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus being baptized. The Father is speaking. The Spirit descends in the form of a dove. And what does the Father say? This is going to be really important later. This is my Son. My Son. In whom I am well pleased. After he's baptized, we read in the text, the Holy Spirit, the same one that just landed on him in the form of a dove, Leads, drives Jesus deeper into the wilderness where he will be tempted for 40 days by Satan and will be among the wild beast in the wilderness. Here's what I want us to do. I'm going to ask you to work with me here. I want us to approach this text because there are folks here, for many of us, this is old. We've heard it over and over. What new could we squeeze out of the story of Jesus being baptized and the Holy Spirit driving him into the wilderness. As a matter of fact, some would even say, well, Mark is the one who gives the fewest details. So there's really just not that much there. What can you get out of 13 verses? And sometimes we approach scripture, especially those of us who've read it over and over in that same manner. I'm going to ask you to look at this through fresh eyes. Others in this room know little or nothing about it. And we want to see this with you for the very first time. What is this text? saying to us beyond just the facts that he went out and got baptized. There's a story that Mark is trying to communicate. It's the story of Peter, but Mark is writing it down and communicating it to us. He's communicating to believers specifically first who are living in Rome. We get to read it 2000 years later, but Mark is addressing this gospel to people in Rome who are Christians who are having to decide, am I going to serve God or not? Because Nero, the emperor, is coming after us. In the middle 80s, 60s, uh, three quarters of Rome was destroyed by fire. Nero's political uh, ambitions were being threatened. And so he decided to blame the fire on the Christians and said, we'll show them. And so that's the reason he persecuted Christians. He persecuted them brutally. Some of them were crucified. Some of them were beaten. But he would even wrap Christians up in animal skins and then set them among a pack of dogs and let the dogs eat through the skins and destroy these humans. He would take Christians and set them on fire in his garden to provide light for his garden parties at night. That's how brutal Nero was. These Christians in Rome are being persecuted for their faith. And Peter is communicating, has communicated the story of the gospel to Mark. And Mark is writing to these believers in Rome who are deciding, am I going to stick with this or not? This is the gospel message. And I want us to read it through eyes 
that have that perspective? What is the message of Mark's gospel that begins to be communicated here in this opening section? There are four main themes I want to talk about. They're simple themes, but they will require us to do a little bit of biblical thinking. And I hope that's okay. Everyone should be awake by now and had plenty of coffee and able to think with me. Um, Number one, Mark wants his readers to be aware of their new hope. Hope is a big deal for people. You understand that? People without hope give up very easily. People without hope are consider taking their own lives. If there's nothing to hope for, if there's nothing better than this, then we might as well just chuck it all and give it up. Mark wants his readers to understand they have a new hope in Jesus Christ. In the very first phrase of verse number four, we read these six words. John came baptizing in the wilderness. That seems pretty uh, simple, not all that deep. But I want to suggest to you that the coming of John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness, listen to me, was the most significant event that had taken place for the people of Israel in over four centuries. That's right, 400 years. John coming and preaching in the wilderness as a prophet pointing to Jesus was the most significant event that had happened in over four centuries. Hundreds of years before John came, God had promised, as a matter of fact, 1,500 years before John, God had promised through Moses that Israel would have another prophet that would come like Moses. Listen to the words of Moses. This is found in Deuteronomy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst and from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Looked out at the end of the screen and the Lord said to me, can you back, back it up one more time? And the Lord said to me, what have they spoken? What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. So Moses, get this for context, is speaking to people 1,500 years before Christ. These are the Israelites. They have been in the wilderness for 40 years. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. And Moses said, God is going to send you a prophet like me. And so Israel started waiting for a prophet like Moses. They waited 100 years. They waited 200 years, 300 years, 400 years. There was no prophet like Moses that came. Many of them started to even give up and think that this one that they had hoped for was not going to come at all. There was a Jewish author living in the second century A.D. by the name of Maccabees. And Maccabees wrote a book. And and, and let me just go ahead and flip to the next screen. Maccabees, this Jewish author, wrote these words. Judas detailed men to fight against those in the citadel. This is about 100 years before Christ. 
And look at verse 43. They cleansed the sanctuary and they removed the stones to an unclean place. And these people deliberated about what, about what to do about the altar which had been profaned. And they decided it would be best to tear it down so that it would not be a lasting shame to them that the Gentiles had defiled. So they tore down the altar and they stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill. Look at this. Until a prophet would come to tell them what to do. This is 100 years before Christ. They've been promised this prophet 1,500 years before. And when we get to one century before Jesus, they're still looking for that guy. Flip to the next screen. We also read this, Maccabees 14. The Jews and their priests have resolved that Simon should be their leader and high priest until a trustworthy prophet should arise. Where is that one that was promised? And they're looking for him, but he is not showing himself. He's not being revealed. In the Old Testament, there was a prophetic writer by the name of Malachi. If you open your Bibles right now and you look at the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. Malachi was written 400 years before Jesus was born. And Malachi says, we need to wait. For he called him the son of righteousness is going to come. He's going to have healing in his wings. And Malachi is putting out the hope that this one like Moses is going to come. But still, he didn't come. By the time Jesus shows up, watch this. There was only a remnant of Jews that were still expecting the prophets and the Messiah and the Savior. You know, when you read the book of Luke and Jesus is born and... uh, Mary and Joseph take the baby into the temple. And they get into the temple and there's this man by the name of Simeon. And Simeon is old and his hands are shaking. And and God had told Simeon, you won't die until you see the one that I promised. And when he held Jesus in his hands, Simeon said, God, you can take me now. You can dismiss your servant in peace Because I finally have seen the one that you promised 1,500 years before. There was another gal in that temple. 84 years she had lived in the temple as a widow. And she too was waiting on the Messiah. And when she saw Jesus, she prophesied. But all of Israel, please get this. This is all I want you to understand from this. All of Israel had for years been hoping for the prophets. The book of Ezra, which was written about 500 years before Jesus. They're rebuilding the temple in Ezra chapter 3. And as they rebuild the temple, the older people who remembered the earlier temple wept loudly. Because this couldn't be all there was. They knew there was something better. But over the years, look right here, the hope diminished. There was only a remnant left. By the time John came on the scene, all hope was almost diminished. Please watch this. But John came baptizing in the wilderness and saying, there's one who is coming right after me, who is so much above me that I'm not even worthy to take his sandal off. That one you've been looking for for 1,500 years. 
prepare the way of the Lord. He has come. And new hope was birthed in the people of God. You see, this is Peter's story through Mark. Mark is pinning the words, but Peter is one that had one day been just fishing, minding his own business. He had been told about the hope that was going to come by his parents and grandparents. But Peter had pretty much given up that that hope was going to come. But one day, this guy walks by him and he says to Peter, follow me. And with such authority, Peter was magnetized by those words and he followed him. And what Peter found out in the next three years was that this one was able to do exceedingly abundantly more than he had ever hoped. Peter watched him open blind eyes, raise people from the dead, open the ears of the deaf, make the lame walk. He heard him teach like no one had ever taught. He heard him say, peace be still, and a storm stopped. Peter said to Mark, Mark, you've got to tell these people. When John came, And preached in the wilderness and said, there's one coming. I know that one, Peter said. Tell them about their new hope. And so when Mark pins those words to these Roman citizens that are being persecuted, Mark wanted them to know about their new hope. The message of Mark, there is new hope. Look look at me. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how badly you failed, who you've hurt, how deep your sin has gone. The message of the gospel is there is hope in Jesus Christ. Say amen if you believe that. Secondly, Mark wanted his readers to know about their new beginning. Not only was there new hope, there was a new beginning. Verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness. Look at this. And preaching a baptism of repentance and remission of sins. John came baptizing. Now, I want us to talk about this. I'm going to try to answer the question that we all have thought and wondered, but we never really want to ask because we don't want to look like the one that doesn't know the answer, so we just kind of let it go. What was the meaning of John's baptism? Look, Look, on the 24th, people are going to go up there, and I'm going to stand up there with them or one of the pastors, and we're going to baptize them. And when we baptize them, we're going to lay them back in the water, and then we're going to stand them back up. Why do we do that? Because it symbolizes, I have died to the old life with Jesus, and now I'm being raised to the new life in Christ. I'm being buried with him, I'm being raised with him. But when John baptized, Jesus hadn't died yet. There was no dying with Jesus in his death. There was no being raised to new life. It had not happened yet. So what in the world was John's baptism all about? There's lots of conjecture. Some believe that he was baptizing those Gentiles who had become Jewish proselytes. Others believe that he was part of a community known as the Qumran community and that the initiation rite was baptism. But there is no real proof to any of that. The ministry of John was unique to any other prophet. He was the only one that baptized. But John was, look, don't don't get lost here. John was a prophet where? In the wilderness. He dressed like a wilderness guy. I know some of you would like me to lose my tie, but none of you want me to dress like John the Baptist. I assure you of that. 
He dressed like a wilderness guy. He ate like a wilderness guy, wild locusts and honey. And all of his ministry was spent in the wilderness. And he's out there calling people to repentance. The word repentance, we think of repentance. We think about a person being saved. But the Greek word is metanoia. And metanoia simply means to turn around. That's why we believe that repentance isn't just, oh, I'm getting saved from my sins. But we're turning around. We're changing the way we live. But in this case, what is he calling them to? A turnaround, a turning back to a previous state. Here's where I need you to think with me, all right? This is not that hard. I just want you to think with me. The wilderness, the wilderness was important to the Israelites. The wilderness was the first place God ever called the Israelites his people. His son. You know, they spent 400 years. We're going back to the book of Exodus here. They spent 400 years in Egypt. He didn't call them his son. If you know the story, and again, I don't want to get bogged down here. They started as a group of 70, a clan of 70, Jacob and all of his family. God didn't call them his people yet. And then they grew over 400 years and they became a massive group of people. And when we get to Exodus and Moses goes there and gets them out, they come out and they go into the wilderness. And that's where they get called God's son, God's people in the wilderness. God said to Moses, you need to tell Pharaoh, Israel is my son. First time they were ever called that, my firstborn. So let them go so that they can come and serve me. Where'd they go to serve him? In the wilderness. But if you refuse, God said, I will kill your son, your firstborn. In Hosea 11 and verse 1, when Israel was a child, God said, I loved him. And out of, watch this, out of Egypt, I called my son. I want to make sure you get this. This is a little bit more maybe than we normally do on Sunday morning. But it's not that hard of a concept. Just get this. Israel was not called God's son Until they were in the wilderness. They were not called his child until they're in the wilderness. So now John comes in the wilderness. And he calls on them to metanoia, to repent, to turn around, to return. John, watch this, look right here. John is calling Israel back to the wilderness to be his son again. To renew their relationship with him. They had abandoned that. They were no longer his children. They'd become cold and formal. It was all about religion and tradition. They were not really the people of God. And God wanted to give them a new beginning. But they would have to return to the wilderness. In all humility and lay aside their pride. And return. Mark's writing this. Through the eyes of Peter. And Peter knew what it was like to lose that feeling of sonship. Peter uh, one day heard Jesus say, man, that's good, Peter. God revealed that to you. I'm going to use you and upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. But he also knew what it was like to deny Jesus three times. And run away thinking that it's all over. My chances are gone. But 
then Peter knew what it was like to have Jesus say, Peter, come here a minute. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you, but man, I really messed up. It's all right, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you, but man, do you know what I did? Peter, do you love me? Peter knew what it was like to lose that sense of sonship. But to have a new beginning. Peter remembers as he's telling Mark like it was yesterday when Jesus said, then Peter, go feed my sheep. Peter remembered like it was yesterday as he's telling Mark in his old age this story. He remembered like it was yesterday when he stood up to preach on the day of Pentecost, feeling like a failure who had once lost that sense of sonship. And he preaches, and it's not because he's all that eloquent. It's just because God has restored him and his anointing is there. And 3,000 people respond to the altar call. Peter knew what it was like to be restored. To mess up, to lose one's sonship and then be restored. And so Peter said, Mark, make sure they know that there is a new beginning for them. Not just new hope, but they can start over Again, how many are thankful we have a new beginning in Jesus Christ? It's not all over. And so Mark wanted his readers to know there's a new beginning. Number three, Mark wanted his readers to know about a new opportunity. I'll give you this one quickly. It came to pass in those days, verse 9, that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are, please get this, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus goes out to the wilderness to be baptized. Anybody ever, you don't have to raise your hand. Anybody ever wonder why in the world Jesus needed to be baptized? For crying out loud, if there's anybody that didn't need to be baptized, it was surely Jesus, right? I mean, why in the world? And I know we, we can use it you know, to, to fulfill all righteousness, but do we even know what that means? Usually most people don't have a clue what that means, but it quotes well. He just did it to fulfill all righteousness. But why practically... Did Jesus go out into the wilderness and be baptized? We love to talk about Jesus being our substitute on the cross. How many are glad Jesus took our place on the cross? Let me try that again because only half of you are. How many are glad that Jesus... Okay, he became our substitute on the cross. And, And we call that vicarious. That means he did something on behalf of someone else. We're all glad he did that. But what we fail to realize, at least I think we fail to realize, is that here Jesus is going out into the wilderness on behalf of all of the people to stand in for them vicariously. It was in the wilderness that they were first called his son. But Israel has rebelled against that. They have turned away, turned into this formal religion where God is going to say, I didn't even know you. In chapter 1 and verse 9, even though lots of people had gone out in verse 5 from Judea and Jerusalem, in verse 9, one comes out from Galilee. And he represents them all, you and me. 
And he goes down into the water. He's just like, just like Moses in the wilderness. Moses didn't say, God, just wipe them out and start new with me. Moses said, Lord, I'm going to stand with those people. I'm going to intercede for them. I'm not going to throw them under the bus. If you're going to blot them out, blot me out too. Moses took his place with the people in the wilderness. Jesus is doing the same thing. I'm going to take the place of those people. And he walked. John said, no, 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 I can't baptize you. Jesus said, you're going to baptize me, John. And he goes into those waters, representing the people, identifying with them. And as he comes up out of the water, that coming up out of the water is answered by a coming down from heaven. The Spirit of God descends like a dove. Heaven's tearing too. And what's the Father say? You're my son. This is where I first called Israel my son. I'm calling you my son. And all of those who will place their faith in me. Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah 64 and verse 1, God, that you would just rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. But there was in the wilderness a pattern that had been set first in Exodus in the wilderness. Look at Exodus 19 and verse 10. This is when Israel is in the wilderness. If you flip that screen to the next one, The Lord said to Moses, watch this, please get this, go up, go to the people, go to the people, consecrate them, cleanse them, and tomorrow, today and tomorrow, let them wash their clothes, let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day, please watch this, God says, I will come down up on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Here's the pattern, consecrate yourself. And I will come down. So Jesus, identifying with all the people, goes down, consecrates himself, submits himself, humbles himself, bathes himself. And when he comes up out of that commitment of consecration, God comes down and says, You're my son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, God was saying to all the people that observed, there's a new opportunity now to know God. There's a new opportunity now to experience God. And Peter says to Mark, Mark, not only do I want them to know that there's a new hope and that there's a new beginning, but I want them to know that there is a new opportunity to know God. He will come down on them and reveal himself to them. Jesus has identified with us. He's gone out into the wilderness to renew sonship, consecrated himself, and heaven came down. Listen, look at me. We don't just have to get by now. It's not just, let's just survive until Jesus returns. We can experience the presence of God in our everyday life. Say amen if you believe that, because Jesus went down for us and experienced the presence of God. Number four, and I'll be done. Mark wants his readers to know about their new challenge. Their new challenge. Mark chapter 1 and verse 12. Immediately that same spirit drove him into the wilderness. 
And he was there in the wilderness, 40 days, tempted by Satan. And notice this, he was with wild beasts. And the angels ministered to him. So the spirit, watch this, the spirit that descended upon Jesus at his baptism now drives him more deeply into the wilderness. But he calls him to penetrate the darkness. Think with me for just a moment. I've talked about this before, but Mark 1, in a lot of ways, resembles Genesis 1. Jesus is baptized in the wilderness and driven by the Spirit more deeply into the wilderness, and there are wild beasts. The wilderness represents everything out of whack. Wild beasts. You're afraid. There's no water to refresh. No seed grows. Everything's out of whack in the wilderness. In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, and the earth was without form and void. That word in the Hebrew literally means, the the phrase, without form and void, in the Hebrew means chaotic. So the, the, the earth was chaotic. It was out of whack. And God said, let there be. And when God spoke... Chaos became order. All of a sudden, there's a sun and a moon, and flowers are popping up out of the ground, and animals are being are emerging. Stars fill the sky. The waters are separated because God spoke to chaos. Order comes. Wilderness is turned into order. So Jesus now is led by the Spirit. After he's been consecrated, renewed, the relationship, you are my son, He goes out from the wilderness and he begins to speak order to people whose lives are out of whack. Let me give you a couple of examples. He speaks to a fisherman looking for purpose and says, follow me. And he finds his purpose. There's order. He speaks to a man, we'll get to just in a few verses, who is a demoniac. He's filled with a demon in the synagogue. And Jesus says, come out. And that man becomes normal. And there's order in his life. Peter's mother-in-law is suffering with a fever. He speaks healing to her. And order comes. There's an outcast leper that everybody has shoved away. He speaks to the leper. The leper is healed. And order comes to a paralytic who couldn't even get into the room. And his friends dropped him down. In Mark chapter 2, in the midst of Jesus, he says, take up your bed and walk. And chaos is turned into order. This was the new challenge for Jesus. Now renewed, holding sonship for all of us. He's called to battle the enemy and the principalities and to advance the kingdom. And Mark wanted his readers to know. There was a new challenge before them. We have a new hope, a new beginning, a new opportunity. But a new challenge to bring order into a world that is loaded with chaos. Hopelessness abounded then and sadly abounds now. Mark wanted us to know there's new hope, new beginning, new opportunity. There's a challenge that awaits us. I want you to stand, if you would. I'm going to close very quickly. I want to show you one more verse on the screen. Stand and just everybody holding steady if you can. 
I want us to return to the opening statement of Mark's gospel. It says this, look, the beginning of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel. The whole set of events from John's coming to the outset of Jesus' ministry is considered the beginning of the gospel. What's the gospel? Some translations say evangel, the gospel or the evangel. Here's a, a little interesting tidbit. That's not a Christian word. We hijacked that word. Um, evangel or gospel was not first a Christian word. Among the Romans, it meant simply good tidings, good news. On the emperor's birthday, they would have a feast and they would proclaim the gospel, the evangel, good news. The emperor's birthday, when the emperor would get more territory, when they would go and conquer another land, they would come back and they would have a big kingdom festival and they would proclaim gospel, good news, evangel. The territory has expanded. They were called to celebrate this achievement. Gospel or evangel literally means an historical event which introduces a new situation for the world. That's what gospel means. A historical event, something that really happens that introduces a new situation for the world. Mark's gospel is announcing That with the coming of Jesus as a historical event, a radically different and new state of affairs had begun. It was a whole new world that had come with Jesus. Gerhard Friedrich, German theologian, said Caesar in Christ, the emperor on the throne and the despised rabbi on the cross, confront one another. Both are evangel. Both are good news to men. They have much in common, but they belong to different worlds. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ is that his coming, his death, and his resurrection provides for us a new hope, a new beginning, a new opportunity, and a new challenge. Father, I thank you for your word today. Thank you for the gospel, the good news that is anchored in an historical event, coming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the good news. And today we've heard just the beginning of that good news. We can have sonship restored. We can experience you in ways we have never known you before. Incredible truth that we find in the person of Jesus Christ. Your head's bowed for just a moment this morning, and I won't take but just a minute. Two questions I'd like to ask. Number one, maybe you're here today and you have never, ever surrendered your life to Jesus Christ not born again. You're not a, not a believer. You're not a Christ follower. You've not given your life to Jesus. But you say, Pastor Kevin, today I'd like to. I believe that he did take my place on the cross. He did pay for my sin. 
And I want to place my faith in him. I want him to live inside of me. I want to serve him the rest of my life. If that's you this morning, just right where you're at, anybody that would slip up a hand and say, would you pray for me? I want to make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. Anyone in this room? Anyone in this place? Let me ask a second question. And how many would say, I am a believer and I love Jesus and I know that he loves me. I know that he has restored and renewed my sonship or my daughtership. I am his child. I'm an heir. I know that. But I'm not rising to that challenge that he's called me to. I'm not, I'm not bringing order where there was chaos. I'm not being the light of the kingdom that he has called me to be, but I want to be. So just by an upraised hand right where you're at, you would say, I want the light of Jesus Christ to more powerfully shine through me and out of me. How many would raise your hand with me and say, all over this room. We're so thankful for his forgiveness. So thankful for the redemption that comes in him. Let's worship him together.